My guest today is an amazing singer-songwriter and the man behind the group The Deer Hunter. I'd like to welcome Casey Crescenzo. Nice to meet you, uh, finally. Um, Thank you very much. A big fan. I got to say that uh, I'm a bit new to the uh, Deer Hunter party. And I say that both as a a bad and a good thing. Uh, (laughs) Bad in in that uh, how did this happen? Uh, that I didn't know about the band for ever until, you know, the last couple of years. And uh, and good, which is that I've had the pleasure of just going back and getting all the albums, almost like Netflix binging. So that's been awesome. Yeah. And uh, Well, I can definitely answer why for number one. I can, <laughs> I can tell you why you haven't heard of us. Um, and it's mostly just because I think we're a, we're a band that from – the beginning was unfortunately defaulting to the wrong uh, the wrong sort of form of, of promotion and marketing and, and the world that we got lumped in. It, it kind of put us in this really weird spot and, and I'm it's not like I've had a hard life or anything like that, but it put it as, us in a weird spot where the the realm we were being marketed in wasn't necessarily going to, you know, outreach to the kinds of listeners who would like this kind of band but at the same time that other world of listeners who wasn't necessarily being marketed to the association we had with with from the beginning with like emo and post hardcore and stuff like that that turned off a lot of people who might have liked the band if there wasn't that association so it's this weird yeah weird sort of middle ground purgatory of music that we've sort of lived in. And also, you know, we've never been on a, a bigger label and anyone who is just going to throw money at the band to get it into people's ears. You, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, no, that's totally a thing. And, and in getting to know the band's music and what you guys do and, and, and what you're able to, to write and produce, I'm not sure there's an easy genre. That's that's what's become apparent to me. And, uh, you know, being that we're the, – the website's called The Prog Report and we, uh, you know, report on all the, the latest Dream Theater and Stephen Wilson news and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that I see you guys as a prog band either. I'm not sure what to make of it. But, <laughs> but, but what I do know is um, – because you take so many risks musically and the musicianship is great and it's adventurous and it's creative, it totally falls into the prog vein and we're more than happy to have the association with, with your band. I think that's where you're winning over a lot of these fans. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I would say for, for me, you know, for a few years when we would get uh, that association or we'd be called prog, I mean, I think we started getting that banner maybe three records in and uh i i think it's actually a really good thing in the sense that i I think that prog for the longest time was like i would consider frank zappa prog even though there's so many of his songs are you know surreally simple and and sort of pop uh, formulaic. I mean, not not all of it, but obviously there's there's weird there's a weird element to all of it. But basically, all I'm getting at is that I think a lot of the music that fell under the banner of Prague 
in the past wasn't necessarily music that was that's purpose was showcasing technicality or anything like that. And it was more that that just existed within that realm of music because it was a world of music inhabited by people who were forward thinking. And, and one of the elements at the time, I think, you know, the, the late sixties through the late seventies, like the sort of birth of, of Prague, I think it was just that these forward thinking musicians happened to be incredible musicians as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's true. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they set out to say like, well, let's showcase the upper echelon of technical prowess. I think it was just, it, it ended up being part of their their creative process was was the fact that they also had access to a, a much you know wider palette of, of musicianship than what you would find in in most you know what you would find what you could hear in most pop music not that those musicians couldn't do it but what they were interested in wasn't necessarily showcasing anything like that but but i think the sh- i think then sometime in the 80s that Pro- Prague ended up just becoming the name for music that or or maybe 90s that the music that was technical and right. that became like well this is what Prague music is so for me i think of of it being the, the deer hunter being a prog band in the sense of what i think is good for prog music to be, which is that forward thinking and and somewhat without boundary uh, creatively, and yeah. and musicianship kind of ends up going hand in hand with that. I, well, right. I think you need to be able to, to play well to some degree to pull off interesting things. Maybe, right. Maybe, of course. Maybe not. But but uh, but yeah. No, I agree. I think that nowadays, to me at least, it's evolved. Uh, the term more into a uh, a place um, for bands that uh, just don't do the norm. That's all. Yeah. You know, they they aren't going to write a four minute pop song for pop radio, and so they become prog. It's almost become that, which is um, which is cool. I think it's opened it up and made it more interesting. And and I think there's been a growth in popularity as as a result. To uh, I would to agree some degree. Uh, I I don't know where to start. So let, let's just go new album because that's what was was recent. So. How far in advance of writing these batch of songs and this part of the story and and the and the whole thing was that was when you were writing Act One and Two had you seen all the way down the line were any of these songs already written at that time or how how far was this going back? Well, the the story was written from Act One because there's actually in um, there's elements of Act Six in every in in every record there's uh there are foreshadowings of act five and act one as far as the story is concerned um musically i i don't really write the way a lot of songwriters have told me they they write where you kind of wake up and you you've got to get a song out a day or something like that just to keep the muscle going i personally end up needing to be i i basically need to be in a situation where okay now it's time to do this album and that starts with writing the first song so i don't really um i don't really have songs just waiting around to sort of i don't want to say shoehorn but retrofit or or you know bring bring into that 
bring into an act record in that way. I, I really like setting aside time and making something from the ground up. But 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 the plot of it was was written um, when I wrote Act One. So when you start uh, working on uh, Act Five and you start with the the Moon Awake, and then are you writing sort of in in sequence as uh, oh this is where the story is and this is what the the idea musically I have for that part of the story? Um, not exactly, but basically what I did, we recorded Act Four and Act Five at the same time and wrote it at the same time as well. Okay. And essentially, what I did was I I prepared a lot of material for the band to dive into so like a summation of the story thus far a a sort of treatment on each record of what what they what was happening within the plot and what the characters were and then sort of some concept art that you know nobody for no other purpose than the band seeing it and wrapping their head around it and then uh also some like character bios and things like that so when I when I and and this was really just because I wanted, I I didn't expect everybody who was going to be a part of it to dive into the level of obsession that I have. But if for any reason there was an idea that they had based on that information that would lend itself musically, I wanted to make sure that they had that material available to them. That's usually just up in my head. Right. But but what what the records usually start with is a track listing and that's me sort of sectioning off each, uh, each beat of, of the story per record. So I, I would just divide it up in the way of, you know, I want to write a song about this and I want to make sure to highlight this moment and, um, this inner monologue or anything like that so that I have that prepared. And then it's, almost process of elimination it's not really a linear writing process where okay well now we're on act four let's write it from start to finish it's more jumping around based on the ideas that i had and uh in where those would lead and sometimes that's writing a song for act five and then realizing that it in some way is is connected to this specific song of act four and then then sort of using some of that material is to create a motif um it, it can work that way or it could be as simple as just you know i have this idea for this song and let's just let's just do it and it happens very naturally right you know when you bring uh some of these different music styles in to the band, uh, you know, Mr. Usher, for example, on this one, do they do they ever look at you and go look at you with like two heads? Like, where'd you come up with this one? Um, that was a funny one, just because I I uh, we it was one I think the only song we didn't track when the band was all together. So I I got um, there were still a few holes left in in Act Five that I was working on and. One of them was this song that I wanted to write for this character, and I was talking to my friend Alex, who writes the the scripts for the comic books, and I was telling him about the character and how I wanted to write a character song for for him, and was trying to nail down the style. And I said I wanted it to be croony and seedy, but also charismatic in a way. And we got on the subject of like Bobby Darren and and stuff like that. And I hung up the phone and I grabbed. My uh, mom inherited my grandfather's Gibson, I want to say L5, 
um, that he played in the Navy band. So it's this nice, big, big band, arch top, um, beautifully maintained guitar. And I just sat down with it after the conversation with Alex and I hit record on my voice memo app. And four minutes later, I had this song that I just sort of played in real time and I sent it to him. And when he said, yeah, that would be perfect. That's the right sort of um, direction. Then I had my brother was visiting, so I had him play drums to it. And this, the song was sort of this uh, patchwork slowly coming together where it just started with this acoustic guitar. And then I just had my brother sort of uh, freestyle over it. And I had a bunch of different takes. Then I, I wrote a brass section to his drums and not the other way around. Um, and yeah, and so so that song was just stemming from not wanting to take a big left turn or, or have a sore thumb song or anything like that. But it was just, oh, this is exactly what this song should be to sort of convey this character. And I think everyone in the band has come to expect that we're go- always going to try and adopt you know, new methods and, and new palettes of sound and also new styles that we all love because we're all just fans of all kinds of music. There's no way to, to limit that to, to one thing or the other. No, I, I think that it, it's what makes the album great. And, and even if it's not someone's favorite song or, or, or style that they like or, or, or think that the band might do, um, to me that reminds me of bands like Queen – you know, and the Beatles back, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff that for no apparent reason they would do, uh, you know, a sitar song on Sgt. Pepper. And right. I don't even like that song, but it's great because it's in the scope of that album. It works, Yeah, exactly. You know? It sets it, it apart. I, I definitely agree with the way that it, it, it offers itself to the scope of the record, whether or not it's a song you enjoy. Um, it, and, and I think that that is a bit of the goal with those songs once they're on the record is that the, while not purposefully left, you know, uh, left of center for the band, it, it does do a good job of stretching those boundaries. And it's almost like some asking some suspension of sonic disbelief of the listener yeah. where you, you just want the listener to not expect something and and not be surprised but just not be expectant and just sort of strap in for the ride which is what you know i think my favorite records have that that side to it 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 is a bit of a journey and they are um they they do have this sort of ride nature to them of ups and downs and twists and turns one thing i like um that bands do and you do a lot of this too is uh revisit themes from earlier songs and on later albums even and you know all that kind of stuff i think it's in the old haunt you, you repeat the the chorus later on in in just a part in i think it's the march right um yes. so at what point do you decide to do those things i always wonder about that um again you wrote that album together so maybe that sort of happened a little bit organically but on uh, occasions where it, it was from albums that were further apart how often do you plan for that or it uh, you know it's a eureka moment oh wait that part from album two could go here type of thing trying to think of the best way to describe it it's sort of like i i 
uh, sometimes am aware and sometimes am unaware at, of the point when a, a motif is created within the music. So a lot of the time, like for instance, there's a melody um, on Act One in the song "The Pip and the Priest" that's played by trumpet. That's there's just this sort of chromatic walk that ends up showing up all over the place after it. And I did know when I was writing it, like this is a motif I'd like to use for this this character and this scene and this setting. And, but then uh, at the same time, there's like the synthesizer line in the song Red Hands is not a line that I had any p- particular interest in as a motif. But then I find as time goes on, that's the one that I want to call back to in certain songs. And it's not just, oh, this would be cool here or this fits here. But I, I end up having this mental library of all of the themes and what their significance is and and how how they can be used and what they should or shouldn't be used for. And then when it's a moment that I find is is important to sort of seat in further to that the world building of these records, um, then it's just sort of a matter of, of being a librarian in my own right sort of mental library of, of these these melodies. Um, but it, because at the same time, I could really retrofit any number of them into any one spot. So any right. of the songs where you hear a, a callback or, or a motif, it could have been any any number of other callbacks. It's not a it, it's never just, oh, this is cool here because that that criteria d- sort of does a disservice to the joy of making concept records to me. Um, which is the obsession side of it and, and the world building side of it. But it's, it's, it's uh, the choice to implement them is always a purposeful one, but the creation of them sometimes is serendipitous or accidental. The song that I'm uh, stuck on right now uh, that I keep listening to is Life and Death. Um, oh, awesome. From, uh, from Mac 3, just because it's a, a brilliant. And, um, Thank you. It's a, it's a classic rock kind of kind of ballad. That song almost seems like a real defined ending point, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, and then you took a break, so yeah. uh, and went on to do uh, migrant and some other stuff. Um, why the break at that time, and and any significance to that song being the last one on Act Three before you took a break? Well, I think there's a few elements to that at the time that we had sort of wrapped up promoting act three, I was very burnt out on that concept in, in the sense of um, especially the production of act three was so involved. And so it took so long to make that record and everything down to the artwork of the record and, and obsessing with every detail to the, to the extent that I did which I do on every record, but I was I was over the the concept at that point in my life. I just wasn't inspired to go back in and do Act Four. It was it was really just sort of um, coincidental that in the story there's also this big gap, um, and the gaps almost match up perfectly from this character from between Act Three and Act Four and the the decision to make act four after act three but i i just wanted something 
I knew that the the act records needed to have this specific sound to them and and required that specific sort of workflow. And so I just wanted something that would be um, rewarding in in the sense of of being new and refreshing. And that's why I decided to go off and do the color spectrum at that point. Right. So then what prompted uh, you to start writing act act four when you did and and uh did at that time when you did it was it like refreshing to go back oh yeah uh, well what what ended up happening was i was doing migrant and i finished up migrant and there's a there's a story in there just about that was the closest i had ever come to the standard uh submit your songs to the to the label and um you know the track listing is a is a decision that's that's had by all instead of the band and it wasn't what i wanted to do with migrant but it ended up happening because the version of migrant that i turned in everybody except for me every, well everybody except for the band um really didn't like it was not the kind of record that the label or management booking thought that they were getting so um I was sort of really depressed after I made Migrant, um, and I was getting really close to. I basically just accepted this, this, this. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, the option was brought up to me of like making a, a record and attempting to do it targeted at radio, and that they they would bump up my contract to work with a big name producer and i would submit all of my demos first and then we would choose which of the demos were recorded and really just doing this the systematic pop approach to making an album and i i got you know a good deal of songs in and i met with the producer who was an incredibly good dude and and really talented and then uh i started to just hate myself and and <laughs> really was um there was a piece of it that be, became a huge theme of act five actually which was and i guess of act four and act five but i felt like i was um doing this enormous disservice to the the younger me the the guy who was so disinterested in all of that and and had no real ambition of radio success or financial success and i started to just sort of feel like fractured i felt like how how could after everything that i put myself through to play the kind of music that i wanted to play why in the world would i be doing this to myself now we're just completely throwing my hands up in the air and saying like let's just make money and so I called my my manager and I told him that and I just said, you know, I'm really ashamed of myself for for doing this and and that's not to say that I wouldn't ever do a pop record. It's just not what the Deer Hunter is supposed to be. Right. And um he asked me, "Well, what would you like to do?" And it was in that instant that I said, "You know what I'd really love to do is I I would love to go and do Act 4 and Act 5 at the same time and I I don't want anyone to hear any of it until it's done i don't want to do the the sort of label game um and he said okay well let me talk to the label and their response was yeah sure that's fine but basically you have to do 
both of those records for what you have financially contracted for one record. So I had to basically do both of those albums for, for the cost of one album. Mm. Um, not including borrowing a good deal of money from both my parents and a friend who ended up paying for the orchestra in full. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, extremely lucky, but it was, it was that moment where it was just like, you know, this, this, this can't be what your next step is. And as soon as I made that decision, it was like all of the depression that I was feeling and all of the like, you know, existential crisis that I felt I was in was lifted just instantaneously. Um, and, and that, that feeling like cascaded to some very extreme inspiration to the point where making the records was not, I mean, it was laborious, but it was not tedious or, or anything other than extremely inspired and, and fun and, uh, just exciting to get back into that realm of, of music in general. I want to ask you about just waves, uh, because, um, that's a really strong, powerful pop record, you know? Yeah. And, and it sort of was like a hit for you guys, I think. Um, in a way, I mean, as much as we could have one, I think, (laughs) I think it was for sure. Uh, I mean, that, that's sort of, uh, counterintuitive to what the label's asking you to do when you, you decide, I don't want to do that. And then you write this song, which by any measure is, is as poppy as anything that could have been on, on the radio in a good way. Oh yeah. No, 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 absolutely. And, and I had a similar thing happen with it when we were doing migrant and my sort of mission statement for the record was that I just really wanted to do a very low key mid tempo, never singing very loud kind of, kind of album. And I wrote Whisper was, I think, one of the first or second songs I wrote for it. And it's one of the most heavy, simple, straightforward songs that that I had ever written. But I think it it's it's hard to say, but I think it's just maybe the thing that excuses them for me is is the purpose that for which they're written. Um, And if that is what comes out then that's really wonderful. But I mean, it's strange because I do think I'm enough of an idealist when it comes to music or I'm stubborn enough that if I was presented two options, which is, you know, one writing the exact same song for the purpose of getting it on radio or writing that song within the, the sort of confines of something a little bit more conceptual and, and creative I would favor the conceptual and creative, even though the outcome is the exact same, <laughs> Sure, you know, and, and I think that's kind of what happened with that. And, uh, and, and also you, sometimes you're faced with recognizing that it's like, well, this is poppy and this is radio. Should I not put this on or should I, should I dress it up differently? So it's not so accessible. And then you're kind of doing this just, you're kind of doing the same thing then anyways you're you're taking into account how something will be perceived and letting that shape it instead of just shaping it naturally and letting it be whatever it actually is and and i think that was something that i i was i've always felt but i needed to sort of remind myself with songs like that or king of swords or uh i'm, I'm trying to think of the other one but um songs that really on face value are are 
obviously seemingly um you know radio songs that that fit the sort of the formula some in some way right king of swords is totally in line in line like that yeah. as well um yeah well, I, I've kept you uh, on uh, quite a bit, man. You know what? I just have one last question. Uh, I'm wondering is is there a uh, in the in the act records uh, mostly is there a uh, a song that is a, a sort of a favorite for you, or or one that maybe defines that collection for you, where you where you say that's what this is about? Um, that's tough because I. I do fall out of love with my records as soon as they're they're made they're they're released. <laughs> like I uh, I I get really self conscious and I'm I just don't have an interest in them anymore. Um, but for me, and maybe this is because it's so recent, but I think the song "The, the Moon and Awake" um, does encapsulate what this story ends up being about. And and for me, what it ends up being about is just the sort of the cascading nature of decisions and, and the way something that you feel like is, a, is small and in the moment can can have that butterfly effect over time. Um, and eventually the, the need to course correct or, or necessity to course correct when you've when you feel that you've sort of veered too far off of your path and and that's really what this song is about is this character and it was also for me um you know symbolic of that experience i was having um just going from migrant and eventually ending up at act four and act five but it it, it is about sort of the the necessity for introspection and um some understanding of your life be beyond your wants and your needs and, and the way that it impacts others. And um, I don't know, there's all of those elements exist in that song. And, and it, it's my favorite off of act five. It's my favorite to play. And, and I think m maybe that offers up a bias, but I, I do feel like it, ha it does a good job of encapsulating what the story is about in general. Well, I, I feel uh, I feel vindicated because that was my favorite on the album as well, and and we had it on a best of list that we did for the year on the on the website. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it just fantastic stuff, man. I could geek out on different things on the album, the the <laughs> reprising of that song in the begin in the beginning on you know the last song is like one of my favorite moments of the year. And, Thank you. That um, that's uh, I I, I will that. be completely honest. That song when I was done. When I had my final sort of draft of it and, and you know ready to be sent off to Mike Watts to to mix, that was the song that sort of really got me in the sense of sort of understanding the finality of what it represented, but also that song I labored over for months. Are you talking and about just, the last one, the beginning? Yeah, yeah. I I really did labor over it, and it went through so many different. Uh, versions and and I had so many different options of what it could be and when yeah. I finally nailed down what I wanted it to be it was I remember taking my phone into our living room and playing it through the speakers to, sh to show my girlfriend and um, just sort of like this big full body exhale but also this feeling of like I sometimes thinking 
am I going so far? Is anyone really going to care? And, and well, does it matter if they do or if they don't? It was just, it left me having finished the album that song specifically left me in the, the strangest headspace. Um, so yeah, I, I can yeah. only, I can only tell you my feeling in listening to that, having experience with big records and progress and listening to all this stuff where bands have the tendency and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I like it just as much, but the tendency is this is the last song we're going to throw all the instruments and the big solos and you know, the, the yeah. sort of, <laughs> This is the ending, and which maybe if you did, I would have been just as well. But um, I thought the way this one did it and wrapped it all up, uh, it just was so emotionally intense and awesome. Yeah. I, I thought it was such a cool way to go, and it was brilliant. Thank you very, very much. Anyway, that is all I got, man. I wish you the best. I can't wait for the next album, and I uh, definitely hope to speak to you again uh, soon at some point. Yeah, definitely, man. Thank you very much for calling. All right, buddy. Thank you. Yep, take care. Bye. Thanks to Casey for the interview. We're going to close with a track off their last album, Act 5. This is the single, Gloria. For upcoming news and interviews, please check theprogreport.com. Follow us on Facebook, at The Prog Report on Twitter, or download the podcast on iTunes. Thanks. For an avenue to simply appear One too many steps into the wrong direction Leading me to throw up my hands Soon I'll know exactly where I stand Found in a flood of incendiary plans Oh, I've been falling fast into the rhythms without rhymes I won't be giving up again Getting up again I heard a voice It said it Thank you.
giving up again I won't be giving up again